Well, as we continue our worship this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, and someone mentioned to me this morning how um, there's just something special about being in the Gospel of John. We know that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's all profitable, but there's something extremely powerful. I think we all would agree with the Gospel of John, and I don't know about you, but I've been thoroughly uh, enjoying and uh, being greatly challenged through uh, studying through this book. And um, we have a chance to uh, continue on in, in what we started last Sunday, and that is the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus was spending some uh, special time with his disciples uh, before uh, he was to be arrested and tried and, and crucified. And so we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week after Jesus uh, washed the disciples' feet in verse 18. John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus said, I, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that you should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel... He went out immediately, and it was night. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, keenly aware that I am inadequate to stand here this morning and to be a fragrance of life to some and death to others. In other words, that some will end up in heaven as a result of what is said this morning, and some will end up in hell as a result of what is said this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word and how straightforward it is. It doesn't let us wiggle away from you um, to fly under the radar, but it just simply exposes the depths of our hearts. And so we thank you that your word is sufficient and that your spirit is powerful to accomplish your work in our lives this morning. And so with that hope, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tomorrow is Memorial Day, 
It's the day that our nation has set aside to honor the men and women who have died uh, while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. And our country does have a rich military tradition. In fact, it began back in the 1700s during the American Revolution when we won our independence from from Britain. Um, Over the years, most people have have served and do serve uh, in our military with great honor and great distinction. However, uh, there are some who have been disloyal to our country's cause. The most well-known traitor in American history is obviously who? Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, the name Benedict Arnold, is, is synonymous with treason and betrayal. In fact, if you looked up the word traitor in, in an American dictionary, in an English dictionary, you would assume, right, to find his picture there. Benedict Arnold's uh, infamous act of treachery occurred of all places in our very first war, the Revolutionary War. Uh, During the beginning phases of that war against Britain, uh, he distinguished himself as a courageous and creative military leader, and his early successes on the battlefield earned earned him a promotion to the rank of Major General. However, over time, he got frustrated, he became bitter when he was passed over for future promotions, and others received credit for his accomplishments, and he was charged with uh, corruption and required to pay Congress back after spending a lot of his own money uh, for the war effort, and so desperately in need of money to pay off his wartime debt and, and also to fund his lavish lifestyle, Arnold began secret negotiations with the British commander-in-chief, Sir Henry Clinton. At the time, Arnold had been given command of West Point, which is obviously that strategic fort along the Hudson River, and Arnold agreed to surrender that fort in return for a royal commission in the British Army along with a sum of money. Well, American forces eventually captured Clinton's envoy, who was carrying correspondence that exposed Arnold's plot, and so he immediately fled to the enemy's side, where he was commissioned as a British general in the British Army, or a brigadier general in the British Army, and he conducted raids uh, really across the East Coast in several states, including his own state, where he burned buildings and massacred Uh, Americans, including his former neighbors. Well, after the war ended, he had no other choice but to move to England, where he was well known there as this distrusted traitor, and he eventually died in exile, uh, being scorned not just by the Americans, but even by the British. And so his name lives on in infamy, infamy in American history. But there's another name, that lives on in infamy in human history. And it's a name, the name of a man who I think is even more notorious than Benedict Arnold as a traitor. Of course, we're talking about Judas Iscariot. And what these two traitors have in common is that they both grew disgruntled, they both grew disenchanted uh, with their situation and eventually sold others out for money and and had to live with the consequences of their betrayal. We we use the expression to sell someone out, right? To to talk about betraying them, to to hand someone over to the authorities in an exchange for money, like like reporting someone that you used to associate with, you, you report them to the police, you're kind of a narc, you give them up. 
uh, for gain. Uh, it, it means to, to cause harm or trouble to come, come on someone that trusted you because either you didn't get something you wanted from them or in order to get something you want from someone else. That's what it means to sell someone out. And that's exactly what Judas did to Jesus. And as we continue to look here at, at John's uh, detailed, very detailed, the most detailed account of, of what transpired in the upper room on the night before he died, we're given an insider's view of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And if you remember last week, we, we learned that after Jesus was rejected by the Jews, he had retreated uh, to the upper room with his disciples um, where he could spend some time preparing them for what was to come because Jesus knew they weren't ready. For, about, for what was about to happen, uh, because they were still anticipating that he was going to overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And, and we know that because they were continuing to, to bicker among themselves as to who was the, remember, greatest, and, and, and which of them was most deserving to sit on his right and left hand when he came into this kingdom. And so the first thing that Jesus did to prepare his disciples for what was to come was to help them think less of themselves knock them off their pedestal, if you will, and, and to learn to humbly and selflessly serve one another. And he did that by assuming the role of a slave and washing their feet. And immediately after washing their feet and explaining to them why he did it and exhorting them to follow his example, Jesus then prepared him, or excuse me, prepared them for the shock that they would soon receive when he was betrayed by one of his own. And of all the disciples that were, were bickering about who was the greatest, no one was more excited about Jesus overthrowing the Romans and restoring the Jews to power than Judas. Why? Because no one was more interested in, in personally benefiting from Jesus' earthly ministry, than earthly kingdom, I should say, than, than Judas. I think this one commentator really summarized the, 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 the heart of Judas and what was going on inside of him uh, during those three years that he was with Jesus. He said this, quote, Judas was not interested in the kingdom for salvation's sake, but for what he hoped to get out of it, namely wealth, power, and prestige. As time went on, Judas became increasingly disillusioned. Jesus showed no signs of becoming the conquering political and military Messiah he fervently hoped for. In fact, Christ had rebuffed the people's attempt to make him king. The Lord stressed the spiritual dimension of the kingdom while Judas earnestly anticipated an earthly, political, and economic one, but he hid his growing disenchantment behind a facade of hypocrisy. You may remember the, the incident that occurred a few days before the Last Supper that, that finally pushed Judas over the edge and, and led him to sell out Jesus to the Jewish authorities. It's, it's just back in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, they're at the Passover now in chapter 13, right? But six days before that, Jesus had come to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with, their, with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And you would think, oh, what a lovely act of devotion to her savior well 
Judas didn't think so. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And on, uh, at face value, that sounds like a, a good question to ask at that point, right? It sounds almost spiritual. Um, in fact, the other disciples chimed in and, and asked the same question. This is ridiculous. Why are we wasting this money? We could be putting this to better use. Well, John makes it clear why Judas said this. What was his true motive? Verse 6, now he had said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a, what? A thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Well, according to Matthew and Mark, it was immediately after this incident that Judas went to the chief priest and struck a deal with them to, to hand Jesus over to them for 30 pieces of silver. And so Jesus knew exactly what Judas was up to. We, we learned that last week in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus, knowing his hour had come, and that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon, to betray him, he knew that, but the rest of the disciples had no clue. And Jesus didn't want their faith to falter when he was betrayed by Judas, one of their very own. Well, it's not that Jesus hadn't hinted at this already. He, he had hinted this, uh, at this along the way, that one of them was going to betray him. I mean, it doesn't get any more subtle than in, in chapter 6, verse 71. He says, hey, just so you know, one of you is a devil. You think that would have got their attention, Right? But what does that mean? One of us is a devil? What, I'd, I probably would have wanted to research, go a little deeper, drill down and find out, what are, you, what are you talking about? Who are you talking about? But it didn't sink in any more than what he had told them about getting arrested and dying on a cross and rising from the dead. And so now they were all alone in the upper room on the very night that he was going to be betrayed in just a few hours. And it was the perfect time for Jesus to expose Judas for the traitor or the devil that he really was. If you remember back uh, in verse 10 and 11, after washing uh, Peter's feet, uh, Peter um, protested and said, hey, well, well uh, wash my whole body. And he says, no, that's not necessary. All you need to do is uh, wash your hands and, and, and your head. Um, verse 10, he says, uh, wash your feet, excuse me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he was bathed and he's only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not all of you. You say, what, is it, what did he mean by that? Well, John tells us, verse 11, for he knew that the one who was betraying him, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. He was referring to the fact that Judas was not saved. He was still in his sins. He was not a true disciple. And so here in verses 18 through, through 30, Jesus proceeded to unmask his betrayer. And I, I couldn't even bring myself to outline this text because I thought, man, I just, it's just so powerful as it just unfolds. And, and so I just want to walk through this with you uh, just kind of one verse at a time and just, just, just see the drama in the upper room uh, unfold. And just notice in verse 18 how the mood just dramatically changes uh, from verse 17. Verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And, and in other words, you'll be happy if you... Put into practice the things that I've just modeled for you. And so in contrast to those who would be blessed for acting humbly and selflessly, Judas 
would be cursed for acting pridefully and, and selfishly. He said, he said, I don't speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And so here is a frightening revelation that one of them was about to lift up his heel, which we're going to see is language of betrayal. And what Jesus had just taught about washing the feet and being clean didn't apply to all of them. And so Jesus wanted to make sure here that the rest of the disciples knew that he hadn't made a mistake by picking Judas to be part of his inner circle. Notice he says, I, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It was all part of God's plan. And in fact, Jesus had chosen Judas to fulfill what the scripture said. And he quotes here, a prophetic portion of the Old Testament that foretold his betrayal. This is Psalm 41, verse 9, just a, one line of it. Let me read the whole verse, Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David, when he wrote that, was, was most likely referring to Ahithophel, who was his trusted friend and trusted counselor who turned against him and joined David's son Absalom in his rebellion against him and it just broke David's heart. And he likened it to having a, a heel, his, he lifted up his heel against me. The idea here is, is, is being treacherously kicked in a way that causes you grief and, and, and pain. It's like, a, like an animal kicking its owner while it's being fed. I mean, some of you have gotten kicked by a horse or something that you were caring for, right? And, and it was just unexpected and it was vicious. I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. I'm just here to help you. And that's not what you got from me, right? I mean, you didn't get without, that just wasn't right. And so while David was describing what Ahithophel had done to him, he, he was also under the inspiration of the Spirit prophesying about what Judas would do to Jesus. And we know that David was a type of Christ, and so oftentimes what happened to him was prophetic uh, or was foreshadowing of what would happen uh, to Jesus, the ultimate anointed one. Another example is Psalm 55. Psalm 55 talks about the betrayal uh, of Jesus. Psalm 55, verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. The prophet Zechariah even gets more specific in Zechariah chapter 11 Verses 12 and 13, he specifically prophesied that Jesus would be, or the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, down to the exact penny uh, is, is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus was saying here is, hey guys, I'm about to get kicked by one of the heels that I just got done washing. But as a consequence of his betrayal, we know that Judas, ironically, met the same end as Ahithophel. Anybody know how Ahithophel ended up dying? 
It says he strangled himself. He hung himself. John never tells us what ultimately happened to Judas. Um, the only other time he's mentioned uh, is in chapter 18 when he came back to hand Jesus over in the garden to the authorities. But Matthew and Luke tell us what happened to Judas. And I think at some point we need to grapple with this. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Judas to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And so uh, they handed the Jewish religious leaders, tried him, uh, convicted him of blasphemy and handed him over to be crucified uh, by the Romans. Verse 3, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, Why is that? What is that to us? See that to yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and what? Hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Dr. Luke, in, in describing the replacement of Judas uh, after Jesus ascended to heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, he says, now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Thank you, Dr. Luke, for the very specific description, right? And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakladilama, that is field of blood. What a sobering site it was just several weeks ago as our group from the church that went to Israel stood on the hill where Caiaphas's house stands still today and and uh, and you look down into the valley of Gehenna the valley of Gehenna we, we know that as as the description of hell and that's where Judas hung himself what an appropriate place right uh, and and you can look out and, the, and they can point to you, that's the potter's field right there that the Jewish religious leaders had purchased as a place where this wickedness took place. Our guide challenged us to think about Judas and why he was so remorseful. And uh, it appears that possibly Judas uh, was so, felt so bad about this because he never expected to, 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 for the Jewish authorities to take it as far as they did. That in some way, Judas wanted to force the issue and get Jesus to reveal who he was to the Jewish religious leaders and that they would accept him. He had never anticipated that this thing would end in, in crucifixion and so he felt terrible about what had happened. Not that that makes him any less culpable or guilty. Can you imagine how devastating this could have been to the disciples to have one of their very own betray Jesus and then go out and hang himself? I mean, just imagine if it was us, 
that one of our pastors, one of our elders was, was exposed as a hypocrite and they felt so bad about it that they, they went out and they committed suicide. And we found him hanging in his garage. I mean, can you imagine how devastating that would be to us? I mean, it would, it would rock our world and potentially cause us to question everything that we believe. And I think that's exactly why Jesus wanted to give them a heads up. So it didn't rock their world, and it didn't cause them to question everything we believe. What Satan meant for evil, to weaken their faith, God used for good to strengthen their faith. That was what he wanted. And so letting the, by letting the disciples know ahead of time that, that, that Judas would betray him when it happened, rather than weakening their faith, it would bolster their faith in him. Notice verse Verse 19. Verse 19, he says, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may what? Believe that I am. Period. You might have he in your translations like I do, but it's in italics, which means it wasn't there in the original. He says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you, so when it happens, you may believe that I am. What was he saying? That, that you would believe that I am God. That my ability to, to tell the future, to, to foretell what's going to happen before it happens, is one more evidence that I'm God. And so he wanted the disciples to be able to reflect on these unforeseen events that were about to unfold, and after they had happened, um, they, they would remember, oh, wait a minute, Jesus said this was going to happen, and so they realized, okay, this didn't catch him off guard, none of this came as a surprise to him, he knew it all along, and it would just serve to confirm their belief in his deity. And here he is applying again the, the, the name of God in the Old Testament to himself. That the, that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And so Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen, and he wanted Judas to know that he knew, and he wanted the rest of the disciples to know that he knew. And I think the reason it was so important for, for Jesus to make sure that, 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 that Judas' betrayal wouldn't cause his disciples to lose heart but instead make their belief in him even stronger was because he had a mission for them to accomplish. Notice verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And so after his death and resurrection, Jesus was planning to send these guys out all over the world to proclaim that he truly is the Son of God who came to earth to live and to die and rise again in our place. And if we repent of our sin and we trust in his accomplished work for us, in his death and in his resurrection, we can be forgiven for our sin, we can be rescued from the wrath of God to come. Listen, that would be impossible for them to encourage others to place their faith in Christ if their own faith was in question. I think Jesus also wanted to to encourage them in knowing that Judas's betrayal would not thwart his ultimate mission. It would go on without him through them. 
They would still have this privilege, this, this, this unspeakable privilege of being his, his representatives, his ambassadors who would lead others to faith in him. And he, that's what he meant by, he said, if people receive you, they're going to receive me, and if they receive me, then they'll receive the Father. I like the way Jesus summed this up in, in, in the, at the end of the upper room discourse in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, God and Jesus are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. And so here we have a picture of of not so much a, a kind of a deathbed scene where Jesus is kind of sharing his final thoughts with his disciples. Uh, this is more like a commanding officer giving his troops his final instructions as they are about to head off on this dangerous mission of bringing the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. Notice verse 21 now. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Up until this point, he'd been hinting at it. Uh, Even in the immediate context, he's been kind of beating around the bush here and implying, right, that someone was about to betray him. But this is the first time where he came out and actually said it in plain Uh, without any um, ability to misunderstand clarity here, that someone would betray him. And notice that, that, that just because Jesus knew that ahead of time and, and that it didn't come as a surprise to him, didn't mean it didn't bother him. Notice it says that he was troubled in spirit. That's the word that we we, we learned or heard the first time back in John chapter 11 when Jesus was with was Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus and it said he was troubled in spirit. He was deeply moved to the point of tears. It says that Jesus wept. In other words, he was grieved. He was brokenhearted. There was also an element that he was agitated. He was even enraged that this was the work of the devil, the evil one, the enemy, And so he was troubled about this. He was grieved. He was brokenhearted that he was going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. Notice their response in verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. I mean, all the other disciples besides Judas had no idea who Jesus was referring to. None of them had plans to betray him and they too were deeply grieved just thinking about the possibility that it might be them that he was talking about in fact in Matthew Matthew records that they began to ask Jesus is it is it me Lord are are you are you talking about me Matthew chapter 26 verse 22 Matthew 26 verse 22 but being deeply grieved that each one of them began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. So here's Judas keeping up the act until the very end. 
I mean, he, he knew that if, if he was the only one who, who didn't ask the question, hey, is it, is it me? That that would be a dead giveaway, right? And so he put on his poker face, right? He was bluffing. But he played the part of a disciple so well that none of the other disciples had the slightest idea that it was him. No one ever suspected him to betray Jesus. In fact, I would submit to you that he may have been the last guy they would ever expect it. Why? Because he was the most trusted because he had the, what? The money. And as we're going to see, he was also sitting in the seat of honor around that table. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. And so here's Peter, right, the natural leader of the, of the gang, not to mention the most emotional disciple. And he wanted to know who Jesus was talking about. Probably so he could deal with it. Knowing Peter, right? He was going to take this guy out. There's a traitor amongst us. Tell me who it is, Jesus. I'll take him out. Luke mentioned that the disciples at the time had a couple swords, and Peter wasn't afraid to use them. We know that, right? Because when they got to the garden and the soldiers came, he didn't even ask. One, one, one disciple said, hey, Jesus, is this the time we should use the swords? <laughs> Peter just pulls one out and goes for it and and goes for the neck of the the slave of the high priest and misses, takes off his ear. All that to say, I don't think Peter would have hesitated to kill Judas on the spot if he knew that he was going to betray Jesus. Apparently, Peter wasn't sitting close enough to ask Jesus himself, so he got John's attention. He's like, hey, John, ask him. Who's he talking about? So he singles to him. And, and notice how he, he, John describes himself here. This is beautiful. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is the first time that John refers to himself in his gospel. And we, we, we said this at the beginning. He never mentions himself by name. He simply refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And we make the, the connection in the last chapter in, in John chapter 21, uh, Peter says, hey, what about that one that you love? You know, what, what's going to happen to him? And then John records, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So we make the connection, oh, John's the one whom he loved, and he's the one who wrote this gospel. You know, I was thinking about this. If any of us were to write a story about the life of Jesus, I'm not encouraging anyone to write a fifth gospel. Don't even go there, right? But if we were, right, to write a story about the life of Christ, we could also refer refer to ourselves as the one whom Jesus loved. Is that not true? Does Jesus love you? He sure does. And so we could all call ourselves or refer to ourselves as the one whom Jesus loved, Why? Because he loves each one of us personally and intimately as if we were the only person in the universe. Someone suggested that it's like when we 
when we stand uh, on the edge of some body of water, whether it's a lake or the ocean, and the sun is setting or the moon is rising and, 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 and it shines on the surface of the water, it appears that that beam of light from the sun or the moon comes directly to our feet. Have you noticed that? And somebody standing on the other side of the ocean or the other side of the lake is experiencing the same thing, right? But to us, it looks like it's all about me, right? And in the same way, the love of Christ appears to stretch to our lives alone. And so I love the intimacy here that John expresses in his relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice verse 25, it says, He leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now again, this is, um, you got to get the picture Da Vinci's painting out of your mind of the Last Supper, right? Of, of everybody sitting at this long banquet table and they're all sitting up in chairs, you know, just like good Americans and good British people do when we eat our meals. They were not sitting in chairs, they were lying on the ground, they were reclining uh, around the table, they were leaning on one, propped up on their left elbow and they were eating with their right hand and so they were all kind of laying kind of uh, I don't want to say spooning but they were kind of <laughs> like that around the table right uh, and, and, and so it was very easy and very natural right for for what for John just to look back and say hey Jesus who are you talking about and he says well the one that I'm going to dip the morsel and give it to and so he did it and he gave it to Judas And I think it's interesting to note here that it was customary for the host, and Jesus was serving as the host of this meal, Um, it was customary for the host to dip a piece of bread or meat into a bowl of spices or gravy and pass it to an honored guest as a special gesture of friendship. And the fact that Judas was, was seated near enough for Jesus to hand him a piece of bread suggests that he was seated in the only other place where he could do that, and that was where? Behind him, which was the place of honor reserved for the host, closest, most trusted friend. And so what's going on here? At the very same moment that Jesus was unmasking Judas as his betrayer, he was reaching out to him in love and extending his grace to him one last time. And in this tender act of friendship, Jesus was appealing to Judas not to go through with the plan. You don't have to go through with this thing. You need to repent and and resist the devil and and, and submit to him and he'll flee from you, right? That's what James 4, 7 says. In fact, even after Judas kissed Jesus in the garden, Jesus still tenderly addressed him as friend. Friend. But Judas repaid Jesus' tenderness and friendship with treachery. I noticed a couple commentators kind of made that the whole point of this text is that this is how you deal with, with those who might betray you, who may return your good for evil or evil for your good. And I definitely don't think that's the main point of this passage, but it is a good application point is it not I mean all of us are in situations where people might 
return uh, evil for our good. We, all we've ever done is been nice to them and, and, and been their friend, and they, they, they turn around and, and, and end up kicking us or stabbing us in the back, and, right? Well, how do you deal with that? It's hard to deal with. Well, you do what Jesus did, right? You keep extending grace and showing love and, and appealing and pleading with them to repent and come to Christ. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. I mean, that verse is just beyond our ability to comprehend. Well, what's going on there in the spirit realm? I can't explain that. Because there's a lot behind what, 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 how John recorded that there, that Satan entered him. But I guess we could say that when, when, when Judas spurned Jesus' final act of love towards him, he sealed his final doom. He refused to surrender himself to, to Christ, and instead he surrendered himself to Satan who used him as a tool to accomplish his will. We know he'd already been to the religious leaders to make a deal with them, to hand, him, hand Jesus over for the 30 pieces of silver. When he did that, he made a deal with the devil. He didn't make a deal with the chief priest. He made a deal with the devil. And when Judas sold Jesus out to his enemies, he was in effect selling his soul to Satan. And we need to understand that before Jesus ever handed, excuse me, before, before Judas ever handed Jesus over to the soldiers, Ju- Jesus had already handed Judas over to Satan. Notice verse 28, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposed because Jesus had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So apparently John had whispered his question to Jesus. They were close enough to do that. Hey, Jesus, who are you talking about? And, and Jesus' answer was not loud enough for everyone else to, to, to hear. So the rest of the disciples were still in the dark here. They, did, they didn't know what Jesus meant when he told Judas to, to, to do what he was going to do quickly. And so consequently, his command here, Christ's command to Judas, was interpreted differently by the disciples. Since he was the treasure of the group, it was logical, right, for them to assume that he had been sent to run some errand. Hey, run down to Walmart, grab the rest of the stuff we need for the feast, or hey, go to the temple and uh, pay our alms that was customary during the time of Passover to, to, to a little extra something for the poor during this time of year. they still had no idea what was, what was about to happen. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel, John says, Judas went out immediately and it was night. Now in any other gospel, that phrase, it was night, might simply be considered a time reference, right? That it was nighttime, which... I think that's primarily what it is, but it could be that because light and darkness are one of the main themes in John's gospel, he may have also intended this to be understood as a reference to to the profound implications of of Judas' decision to betray Jesus, what was going on in this man's soul. 
And when Judas failed to to heed Jesus' final warning about embracing the light and thus having abandoned the light, he was engulfed by the darkness and controlled by the prince of darkness. And and so in this final act of defiance, uh, his heart closed off to the light and he turned away into the darkness that has no end. And guess what? He is still there. You guys know that I have a great deal of love and appreciation for John MacArthur who uh, I've learned so much from reading his books and listening to him preach and uh, one of the things I picked up from him over the years is, is that uh, he, he wrote his dissertation in seminary on Judas. What, what an interesting topic to choose for your dissertation to write on Judas. And he said the reason why he did is he, he just couldn't, he couldn't fathom how a man who had the, the untold privilege of walking so closely with Jesus for three years could end up rejecting him and going to hell. And so he's like, I gotta figure this out. I gotta study this thing and figure out how is this possible. And his conclusion is, is very simple. He, he said this, he describes Judas as the man who kissed the door to heaven and went to hell. The man who kissed the door to heaven and went to hell. And it is remarkable, truly remarkable, that none of the other disciples discerned that Jesus was a traitor, let alone an unbeliever. Turn quickly to one more passage as we wrap this up. Matthew 13 is that well-known parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. We don't use the word tares much these days. He's talking about weeds. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. I would suggest to you that this is a color commentary on Judas's betrayal. How does a guy who walks with Jesus for three years, right, sees and hears everything and ends up rejecting him and going to hell. This is, this is the commentary. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we're not left to our own ingenuity to interpret that because Jesus explained it very specifically in no uncertain terms. In, in, in that same chapter, verse 36, it says that, the, that, the, that he and the disciples left the crowds, they went into a house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. So here we go. Verse 37, he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. It's me, talking about me, I'm the sower. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is who? The devil, 
And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, out of, out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a clear reference to hell. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears let him hear. You got ears? Jesus is saying, listen up and listen good. You don't want to miss this. I think that Jesus' own disciples were a microcosm of what he taught them in this parable. That Judas was a tear. The devil sowed among the wheat, and until Jesus returns, the devil will continue to sow tares among those who claim to be followers of Christ. Bruce Milne has been very helpful to me as I've studied through this gospel, and listen to what he says, and I think these are some sobering words that that we need to hear this morning. He said this paragraph, what we've just looked at, is a powerful and disturbing reminder of the ambiguity of the life of the people of God in every age. Despite all the laudable, praiseworthy, and entirely appropriate attempts, particularly since the Reformation, to obtain a pure membership for the church, it remains, as Calvin acknowledged in the 16th century, a mixed multitude. In other words, even to this day, right, we as elders and pastors of the church try to guard the membership of this church and and do everything we can to make sure that the only people who ever join this church are true believers. But even our our best attempts, right, to obtain a pure membership, it's still a mixed multitude. And Milne goes on, he says, only Christ can truly unveil the heart as he will do at the coming judgment day, then and only then will the true flock of the Lord be assembled by the good shepherd. Until then, the church is an irreducibly ambiguous company, at once both holy and profane, embracing the servants of Christ and the servants of Satan. Do you realize what he's saying? That that in this very room this morning, there are likely servants of Christ and servants of Satan sitting side by side. I wish I could come up and say, you're one of them, you're a servant of Christ, and you're a servant of Satan. Only Christ knows. Only Christ knows our hearts. And he goes on, he said, the most disturbing element in this passage, however, is the awesome warning represented in the figure of Judas. There is tragically a road to hell at the very gates of heaven. In the sense that it is possible to resist even the prolonged personal appeals of Jesus Christ and turn away at the last into darkness. Hell is no mere theoretical possibility. It is an awesome and fearful reality. To refuse the light means to choose the darkness where no light will ever shine again. Jesus saw, he heard, he experienced, and he still went to hell. Listen, beloved, if there was one tear among the 12 disciples, surely there are multiple tears in the church today. And maybe even in this church. 
could it be that you are one of those tares? You may have been coming to church your entire life. That's just what you've done. You, you, you go to church, and you might even be a member of this church. There's only so much we can do as pastors and elders to know your heart before you join. You could be a member of this church and still not be a true believer. You've seen it all. You've heard it all. You've experienced it all. But you're still on the road to hell. Listen, it's easy to look close to Jesus, right? It's easy to look, look close to the Lord. I can get up here and look like I'm walking close to the Lord. That's easy. Anybody can do that. It's even possible to feel close to the Lord when you're very, very far away from Him. Why? Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked, right? And so we might be able to deceive our spouse or our parents or our peers or our fellow church members. We might even be able to deceive ourselves. But guess what? You can't deceive Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, and this is the good news, this is is the hope today for us, that it's through this very message about Jesus, I mean, why is this in the Bible? Well, I think that God is, is lovingly and mercifully extending his grace to you this morning and pleading with you to repent of your sin and submit your life to Christ. I mean, how could you betray such great love? He's he's showing love to you once again this morning by showing you an example of what not to be. Don't be this guy. You want my personal opinion about why Judas committed suicide? Personal opinion here. It wasn't that his plan failed. It wasn't that things didn't work out the way he wanted them to work out. It wasn't because of how he was mistreated or abused by others in his life. I believe that the reason why he committed suicide was because he knew that he had betrayed such great love. And he couldn't live with himself. And so may God's undeserved love and kindness and tolerance and patience towards you and towards me lead us to repentance today. Let's pray. Father, this is heavy stuff. But we gotta hear it because it's in your word and I just as soon avoid passages like that but Lord I'm thankful that we just preach what we come to next and we trust that you're going to use it to accomplish your purposes in our lives and so I pray Lord I I wish I could go up I, I long to be able to go up to people and be very specific and direct and say you are a tear you are a wheat you're a servant of Christ you're a servant of Satan I can't do that this morning because ultimately I don't know only you know And so I ask that by your spirit, you would point the figure in people's hearts, that they would feel not pressure from me or anyone else, they would feel pressure by your spirit 
to examine their lives, to make sure that they are truly in the faith. That there would be no Judases amongst us who would have been here months, even years, hearing and seeing and experience all that we get to hear and see and experience on a weekly basis and would still end up in hell. May that not be true of anyone in this church. And so, Lord, accomplish your work for your glory, for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.